Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Spoiler alert. The film Interstellar depicts uh, this world in the near future, and it's a dying world. Earth has been devastated by drought and famine, leading to the whole world becoming a kind of enormous dust bowl, and it causes extreme climate change and crop failure and the threat of extinction for humanity. But there's a mysterious rip or something in the space-time continuum, and it gives people the chance, one last chance, to travel beyond our solar system in search of a new planet, a new world that can give life and sustain life. And the crew of a spaceship called the Endurance go further than any human in history, even further than Captain Kirk, as they embark on a voyage into the unknown. And there's only one man who's capable of flying the Endurance, Matthew McConaughey. Uh, he plays a character whose name is Cooper. He has to make a choice between uh, seeing his daughter grow up, or maybe even seeing her again, on the one hand, and the future of the human race. Because even if the mission is successful, he knows that the nature of space-time travel is such that by the time the astronauts get back, they will only be a few days older, but the people that were left behind will be years, decades older, even dead. So Cooper has to make the choice. He chooses to try and save millions of families, and he leaves his young daughter sobbing and broken-hearted in her bedroom. But as he leaves, he makes the promise, you, I will see you again. Now, the mission that they go on in outer space is a complete disaster. The crew makes some, some informed guesses that turn out to be wrong. They are stuck in remote space, and everyone is dead except for two crew members and a robot. Cooper then sacrifices himself to save his colleague, and as she is propelled to safety, his ship is sucked into a black hole and it begins to tear apart. Now, at that moment where you expect everything to be completely obliterated, something really weird happens. Cooper has somehow entered into another dimension and he finds himself trapped in this infinite column that kind of goes in all different directions. And there he is, sort of floating in it in his spacesuit. And in this column, time is stretched out as physical space. And so he's actually looking into the past. He's looking into his daughter's bedroom in the past and seeing himself as he tries to console this broken-hearted, sobbing girl and, and saying, I'm going to come back for you. And, and he's looking, and he's looking in, but he's looking through the back of a bookcase so you can kind of see the... the, the um, this side of the, of the books, and he's peering in and he's, he's desperately shouting and hammering, but the word can't get through. But then he realizes something as this breakthrough, that he can communicate through gravity. Somehow, because of this fifth dimension, and I'm sure there's some weird science to back this up, he can communicate by, by just making an impression. And so he kind of bangs it and some books fall off the shelf and the girl thinks it's a ghost. And then he, he manages to make some marks on the floor and he makes Morse code signals and he coordinates in the dust of the room and gives clues. And he manages somehow to communicate the way to a new world, the way from death to life. And the costly mission turns out to save the human race. Now, does he keep his promise? and see his daughter again. 
I'll leave that to you to find out. <laughs> Having spoiled 90% of the film for you already. <laughs> it's a great film, by the way. But I do want to share this quotation. As Coop is looking through the back of this bookcase on the day of this dust storm, he realizes something and he says this. I brought myself here. I'm here to communicate with the three-dimensional world to save the world. See, he realizes that he has access to infinite time and space, and he's not bound by anything. In other words, for rescue to come in this movie, someone has to speak from outside to the dying world. Someone has to communicate superior knowledge that they don't have. Someone has to give them life because they don't have power to find it for themselves. Someone actually has to have a perspective of God, although the film tries to sort of avoid God. Now that is, is just an amazing picture and analogy of what this whole section here in John chapter 5 is all about. Our world is dying, and for rescue to come, we need a voice from outside. We need a perspective from out there, and we have such a voice, and it's the voice of Jesus Christ. And here in this chapter, we have one of the fullest descriptions of who Jesus is in the entire Bible. And we're privileged here to eavesdrop a conversation uh, with the Son of God himself, the unique, only Son of God, and he, he describes who he is. And do you know what? I think that's why this is really not easy to read. I think Jess did a brilliant job. It's very hard to understand this because it's a voice from outside. You have to spend a lot of time just sitting with these words and let them sink into you. And gradually, as when the sun rises, the glory of the voice of Jesus will dawn on you and you hear his voice and you end up honoring the sun. Honoring the sun. That's what we're trying to do today. So what we need in our lives is to honor the Son of God. Now, we can't explore all the depths of this chapter at all. I feel what I've got to say is woefully inadequate, but I've got three things to share with you. Three things about Jesus. Firstly, he has equality with God. Secondly, he has the ability to give life. And thirdly, he has authority to judge Equality with God, ability to give life, authority to judge. Equality, ability, authority. Firstly, equality with God. And we join the story here in chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus is doing things on the Sabbath. He's healing people. He's, he's, he's um, doing good works of mercy and, and, and love. And what has just happened in the first part of chapter 5 has caused a real stir in Jerusalem. Jesus has walked into this guy's life, a man who's been uh, disabled and crippled and paralyzed for 38 years. He walks right up to him and he says, do you want to get well? And he heals him on the spot with a word and tells him to take up his mattress and walk and go home. Stepped into his life and changed it forever. It's a miracle and it reveals the power of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and his perspective reveals his power because nobody else could restore a crippled body with a word. His person because he declares he's got the right to do what only God can do. And his perspective because he goes back to the man later on and says, hey, by the way, you're well now, see? You got well. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Interesting. 
according to Jesus Christ, there's something worse that can happen to you than being disabled and crippled for 38 years. There's something worse. What is it? Well, it's remaining, remaining under the anger of God, remaining under God's judgment. That's worse, much worse. So Jesus says, stop sinning. But you know what? This man doesn't take it on board. He appears to immediately uh, turn his tail and goes to the establishment leaders and tells them that it was Jesus who made him well on the Sabbath. Now that's what's set up our story today, our text, because these authorities start to persecute Jesus. Why? Well, firstly, because he's doing these things on the Sabbath, Saturday. Now, it's probably hard for most of us to grasp how important it was to Jewish people in the first first century in the ancient world to have this Sabbath day of rest. It was enshrined in their law, in their Bible. It was one of the Ten Commandments. It was a cherished cultural distinctive. If you have Muslim friends, you know that they cherish. Many Muslims cherish Ramadan and Eid. So Jews cherish the Sabbath. To break the Sabbath is a bit like betraying your family and your culture all at once. So they fenced it around with all these additional guidelines, a bit like health and safety, you know. And here's Jesus happily breaking all the rules and crossing the Sabbath boundaries. And so it arouses indignation. Who is he to think he can do this on, on the Sabbath? But, you know, that's just the start because there's more to come. Because when he's asked, Jesus' response to the authorities is hardly diplomatic. He puts the fox among the chickens, the cat among the pigeons. He upsets the apple cart. He pulls the pin out of a grenade and stands there. Here's what he says, verse 17. Here's his defense. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. You see what he just did? This is not a defense based on interpreting the Sabbath. He doesn't say, Oh no, chaps, you don't understand. What I was doing really wasn't work. This is a defense based on being equal with God. He doesn't argue that the Jews have got the Sabbath wrong. He argues that whatever justifies God in his ceaseless work, sustaining the world 24-7, also justifies his doing what he likes on the Sabbath. The Father's work continues without pause since the creation of the world. And Jesus says, so does my work. Now these guys get it immediately. So in verse 18 it says, for this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Here we are on chapter 5. By chapter 18, they will arrest and try him, and by chapter 19, he will be killed. It starts here because of this claim. But what does equality with God actually mean? It's important to get clear about this. Many people in our world and in our culture, not least our Muslim friends, assume that any claim to be equal with God must mean that there's more than one God. Here's a quote from the Quran. People of the book, that means Christians, people of the book, do not exceed the limits of your devotion in your religion or say anything about God which is not the truth. Jesus, son of Mary, is only a messenger of God, his word and a spirit from him whom he conveyed to Mary. Do not say that there are three gods. It is better for you to stop believing in the Trinity. There is only one God. He is too glorious to give birth to a son. Now, according to Jesus Christ, 
That is a misunderstanding of what equality with God means. And he explains what he means very carefully. Look with me again at verse 19 and 20. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Is Jesus equal with God? Yes, but not in the way that his opponents understand it. He's not a competing God. He's not an alternative God. There are not three gods or two gods. There's only one. But Jesus is God the Son. Not because he's been born, but because he is a distinct person relating to God the Father in a unique relationship. Now, in the ancient world, most sons grew up and learned a trade or a profession from their father. They sat as an apprentice for a while and learned the family business. They sat by their father's side. If they were in a practical trade, they probably literally uh, followed his hands as as he did things. And Jesus himself had learned the carpentry trade from a man named Joseph, who was Mary's husband and is sometimes called Jesus' earthly father, although he wasn't his physical father in any sense. Here in verse 19, Jesus explains that as the son... He does what the Father does. He's not independent of God the Father. You might say the Son can't do anything on his own initiative. He doesn't go off on independent missions. So although elsewhere in John's Gospel, Jesus is called the unique Son of God, and he may truly be called God, chapter 1, verse 1, and he takes divine titles, I am who I am, And he takes divine rights. Uh, My father's working, I'm working. Even though all of that is true, yet Jesus, the Son of God, is always submissive to his Father. I can't do anything by myself. Now, this is not a strictly kind of quid pro quo reciprocal relationship. John would never say that the Father does only what he sees the Son doing. There's a distinction here in their roles. The Father initiates, sends, commands, commissions, grants. Jesus, the Son, responds, obeys, performs the Father's will, and receives authority. You see the distinction? So in this sense, Jesus is like an agent of the Father. Although he's much more than just an agent. Because the end of verse 19 says this. Whatever the Father does... The Son also does. Now there's a claim to deity. Whatever God the Father does, Jesus the Son also does. Whatever. There's no work of the Father that Jesus the Son is not party to, he's not involved in. Whether it's creating the cosmos, sustaining life, calling a people out, governing the nations, speaking truth, the Son is fully involved. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And that must mean that he's as great as the Father, And he's as divine as the Father. Now why does the Father bring the Son into his work in such a total way? Verse 20 gives us the answer. Because the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. The love of the Father for the Son is displayed in this. He continuously shares all that he's doing with him and brings him into his work. And the love of the Son for the Father is shown in this. He's perfectly obeying the Father and going along with it all the time. 
And that means that when you see Jesus Christ, when people saw the man Jesus, they actually saw God. He was revealing God to them. Now, there is a glimpse into ultimate reality. Throughout all eternity, before time began, the Bible teaches that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been a delightful, happy relationship of love never beginning, never ending. And each of these three persons of the Godhead has a distinct role, yet they're all equally God. The Father loves the Son, shows him all that he does. The Son loves the Father. They're overflowing with love for one another. And this triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, purposed to make the cosmos, to share their love with creatures made to be like him. That is why you are a person not just a monkey. That is why you love and you need love and you enjoy love. That is why you are intelligent. You really are. That is why you need purpose. Because you were made by this God. So the first thing we learn from this voice from outside as he speaks into our world, is that Jesus, the Son, has equality with God. Now, my second and third points are much quicker, you'll be pleased to hear. As we press on, we're going to read that the Son also has ability to give life. Read again with me, verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. Now, the Bible teaches that God has the power to, to give life. He created us in the first place, but also because of that, he has the power to raise the dead, to restore bodies and give them life back. In the Old Testament, this is taken as God's prerogative. Daniel chapter 12 says this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Job chapter 19, Job says this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. See, these guys believed that God could raise the body, that there would be a physical resurrection. And now here in verse 21, we read that God the Father and Jesus have this kind of parallel job description. Just as a father raises the dead and gives them a life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. There's a promise of a future resurrection that's bodily. The hope of the Bible, the hope of the Christian, is not that you get to go and sit on a cloud with a harp and a load of babies playing praise songs all day long. It's that you'll actually be re-embodied in your body. Jesus Christ was, was recognizable when he rose from the dead. This is a hope of a future resurrection where the, the creator restores human bodies to life. Now I know this sounds pretty weird and pretty fantastical, but I want to argue that this is just an extension of believing that God gave you life in the first place. Uh, Lesson number three in the preaching class is never take a book into the pulpit and read from it. So I'm going to break that uh, rule now. We're also having a quote from C.S. Lewis just about every week at the moment. I'm going to have to find some other books. But this is a great book called Miracles by C.S. Lewis, published in the 40s, when he was a fellow of a college in Oxford. 
And he talks about miracles and he says this. You know, there's a sense in which no doctor ever heals. Doctors themselves would be the first to admit this. Would you, doctors? The magic is not in the medicine, but in the patient's body. The recuperative, the self-corrective energy of nature. What the treatment does is to stimulate natural functions or remove what hinders them. We speak for convenience of the doctor, Jess, uh, healing somebody, or the dressing healing a cut. But in another sense, every cut heals itself. No cut can be healed in a corpse. The same mysterious force which we call gravity, when it steers the planets, or biochemical when it heals a live body, is the efficient cause of all recoveries. And that energy proceeds from God in the first instance. All who are cured are cured by God. Not merely in the sense that his providence provides them with medical help and wholesome environments, but also in the sense, listen to this, that their very tissues are repaired by the far-descended energy which, flowing from him, energizes the whole system of nature. You see that? All healing is healing from God. I cut my hand two days ago. You know what? It's got a scab on it now. It'll be fine by Tuesday. I haven't done anything to heal that. It just healed itself. Actually, it's the power of God giving me this kind of body that can heal itself. Now, you agree with that, right? All that we're saying here is that the energy, what we think of as the laws of nature, are actually the laws of God. He's the one that gives you life, healing, restoration. So resurrection is just that on steroids. <laughs> it's that kind of healing, extended, that sort of energy, but not just a, a little dribble of it, but a massive ocean, raising the dead bodies of billions of people to live in a new creation. Wow! How can you get that kind of resurrection? Jesus actually tells you here, verse 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. How do you gain resurrection? By believing the word of Jesus Christ and trusting God. Simple as that. You don't bring anything to the table, friends. Your best efforts to please God are a waste of time. They're actually an offense. Your best efforts. You don't contribute anything to your rescue except your failure and sin. But by faith alone and by grace alone, you can cross over from death to life. Have you done that? Now, the second thing that we notice in Jesus' words is that I'm going to speak to nerds for a moment here. Some of you are nerds. You love this kind of thing. Verb tense. Verb tense of verse 24. I know some of you are very excited about this. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Now, this is very interesting to nerds. 
If you have crossed over, in the Greek language, it's in the perfect tense. It means something that happened in the past that has an ongoing consequence in the present. If we say Matt has been employed by Barclays, we don't mean that he only worked for them for one day. We mean that he was employed by Barclays and it has ongoing consequences in the present. That's what Jesus says here. If you believe God and hear Jesus' word, you have crossed over from death to life. You crossed over in the past and that has ongoing consequences now and in the future. Let me give you another illustration. In the days of the British Empire, a man could be given an officer's commission by the Royal Navy. Now, the commission was just a, a piece of parchment, you know? It just, just something that it said, you know, so-and-so is now uh, commissioned to be an officer. But on the strength of that piece of parchment, he could go to the shops and buy his full officer's uniform. He could go and buy all his equipment. He could buy his sword and whatever else he needed. On the strength of that, because he'd crossed over to being an officer, even though he actually wasn't one yet, he was one because he had the parchment. And Jesus says, if you believe in him, you have crossed over from death to life. You're already in the life zone. You're already there. Now, what does that mean for you if you're a Christian? Interesting. The life you now live should increasingly look like the life of the world to come. When you do something that's loving to somebody now, you are showing that you've got the life of God in you, and that's because the world to come is a world of love. If you resist sin now and put sin away and put it to death and and, and you resist temptation. You're actually living in the, world, the way of the world to come. You're living the way of life. And, and the other flip side applies that if you, if you indulge in your sins, if you act in a hateful way, you're living like the old dead world. You have crossed over, Jesus says, from, from death to life. You're in this life zone. So the first thing we learn about honoring the Son is that Jesus has equality with God. And the second thing we learn is that he has the ability to give life. And thirdly, and very quickly, we learn that he has authority to judge. Read with me again verse 22 to 23. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. See, here we, we see a distinction between the roles of God the Father and the Son. They both can give life, but the Father has determined that he will not directly judge anyone. He's entrusted judgment to Jesus. Perhaps we might say it's a delegated authority. And the Father has done this so that all may honor Jesus the Son. Now, people sometimes think of the God of the Old Testament as the kind of the bad guy of the Bible. You know, he's the one that uh, sends plagues and gives laws and seems to judge people. And he's like the angry God. And then they think of Jesus as the sort of sweetness and light, you know, cuddly, meek and mild, the God of the New Testament. Now, you see here how absolutely naive that kind of thinking is. You see that uh, the Father has entrusted all judgment to Jesus the Son. So that must mean that there's are going to be a big difference between his first coming and his second coming. In his first coming, Jesus Christ took our frail flesh upon him and he identified with us. He lived our life. He died the death we should have died. He rose 
and ascended to heaven. But he's coming back. And at his second coming, he will bring judgment. He will come as the judge. And Revelation says that men will cry out for the rocks to fall them, fall on them and hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb of God, the meek one who took away our sins, will return and judge the world. And he'll put an end to all evil and corruption and wickedness, including yours. So where will you be on that final day? When the voice from outside speaks and calls your name, will you be found accepted in him or rejected because you rejected him now? Will you fall under his judgment or fall into his arms? Where will you be when the sun comes to judge? Now, at the moment, there's an amnesty. You can do something about it now. You can believe in his name. You can trust him and follow him. Humble yourself. Lean on him. You can ask him to forgive you. But one day, every knee will bow to Jesus. And some will bow in love and adoration and thankfulness that at last they can see him. And some will bow in utter misery because the judge has come and it's too late. Friends, come to Christ. Maybe even today. Maybe you've been thinking about this for a long time. Come now. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a minute. We're going to take that cup and drink it remembering his blood shed to forgive our sins. We're going to take the bread and break it and remember his body was broken for us to forgive people, wicked broken people like you and me, this could be the day that you take that bread and wine and you take it for the first time as a person who's redeemed, rescued, changed. Turn now. Come to him now. What else have you got to lose or live for? That's who he is. He has equality with God. He has the ability to give life and he has the authority to judge. So, friends, do you honor the Son? Do you honor the Son? I want to speak to Christians now. Some of you Christians, you may have been a Christian for a long while, and the novelty has worn off. The long grind of years of following Jesus, and you've lost sight of who he is. You're going through the motions today. There is very little real affection and warmth left in your heart for him. Your perspective now has been shaped more by the world around you than by the Bible. Your outlook has been shaped by your friends or your colleagues, or the media, more than by the voice of the sun. You still believe, more or less, but your believing is wearing thin. Christianity has an air of unreality about it to you, whereas this world seems more real. You're wondering if it's really all true, but it's probably more hassle to leave the church than just kind of stay in it half-hearted, isn't it? Can I ask you, friend, come back. Come back to the Son who loves you and gave himself for you. Remember the love that you had for him at first. Hebrews says, let us encourage one another daily so that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need to encourage each other daily in this church. God only allows you to trust yourself for one day. Yet, friends, some of you might have been drifting for weeks months, maybe even years. Have you heard his voice speaking to you today, the voice from outside? Have you heard it speaking to you through the 
pages of this scripture, we come back. I want to speak to people who are suffering. You have suffered long and hard, and the road ahead looks longer. You know you may carry your suffering with you until your dying day, unless the Lord intervenes, and it doesn't look like he's going to. It could be mental health, physical health, family pain, the impact of abuse. It could be the ongoing effects of somebody's sin on you. It could even be your own sin. You are tempted to curl in on yourself and roll up like a hedgehog into a ball. On the inside, it's full of self-pity. The outside is covered in spikes. Dear friend, can I ask you, honor the Son in your suffering. He's able to give you life. He's equal with God. He knows everything you're going through. He knows you through and through. Go to the sun with it. Don't roll up. Joni Erickson Tard is a very famous woman who broke her neck when she was a teenager in a diving accident. And she was um, crippled from the neck down. She could move her head, but nothing else. She said, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. She spent her whole adult life in a wheelchair, and she wrote, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then, in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. And I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know what I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we are now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It would never have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. What an expression. The bruising of the blessing of the wheelchair. Suffering person, will you honor the Son, who is equal with God, able to give you life, and is authorized to judge? Career person, you have got a wonderful career ahead of you. You've got a wonderful opportunity to make a difference in the world through your work. You can make a contribution to the good of the city. You can make a contribution to society, to culture. You can bless people. And if your work is done well, it will bring honor to somebody. It will bring honor to somebody. And I speak here to people who work in business, people who work in media, tech, medics, third sector people, academics, whoever you are. You have an opportunity to bring honor through your work. But who will get the honor by the way you work? Will you honor the sun? New parents. Got a few of those around. My father-in-law was here last week. He was commenting on how ineffective contraception seems to be at this church. <laughs> I said, I always lead by example. New parents, I've, I've been there a few times. As you enter this new phase of life, 
there is a distinct temptation to honour your baby more than you honour the son. Of course you must love and cherish and nurture and care for your baby. Of course. But don't make him or her the main focus of your life. Let me ask, are you still orientating your life around bringing honour to the Jesus Christ, the son, or has he been crowded out by the care and success of your child? Honour the son. And finally, let me speak to the non-believing person here again. I read this week a tweet from Professor Richard Dawkins, who I follow on Twitter. In a succinct statement, he said, we are African apes, and we are descended, as are chimpanzees, from extinct African apes. We're African apes, and we are descended from extinct African apes. Now, is that it? Is that it? Is that where you come down? I mean, is that all you are? Let me ask, who speaks for you? When you hear Jesus Christ saying these things, and you hear Professor Dawkins saying that you're just an African ape, which one is ringing true as the total explanation of reality? I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Let's bow our heads and honor the sun in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we tremble at your word. We're brought into depths and to a reality that we can barely grasp. We're so finite. And yet we thank you that you have spoken to us in these scriptures. We thank you for the Son, for Jesus. We thank you that he came all the way down to be one of us. We thank you that he, he set his great heart of love upon us and he will not go back empty-handed. We thank you that although he was strong, he made himself weak. Although he was rich, he became poor for our sakes so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. May we all here be rich today. May we be extravagantly wealthy in all the good things that you've done for us. Restore us again, we pray, in our faith, in our walk with you. Help us to be men and women and children of the word. For the glory of the Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.